Friends, let us turn now in God's holy word for our praise, our worship, our meditation, for our instruction in righteousness. We turn to the book of Revelation, chapter 10. The book of Revelation, chapter 10. We commence our reading at the verse 1. This is the word of God. Let us come and hear together God's precious word, his holy word. The Lord help us, give us ears to hear and hearts ready to receive his word. And I saw another mighty angel come down from heaven, clothed with a cloud, and a rainbow was upon his head, and his face was as it were the sun, and his feet as pillars of fire. He had in his hand a little book open, and he set his right foot upon the sea, and his left foot on the earth, and cried with a loud voice, as when a lion roareth. And when he had cried, seven thunders uttered their voices. And when the seven thunders had uttered their voices, I was about to write, and I heard a voice from heaven saying unto me, Seal up those things which the seven thunders uttered, and write them not. And the angel which I saw stand on the sea and upon the earth, lifted up his hand to heaven, and swear by him that liveth forever and ever, who created heaven and the things that therein are, the earth and the things that therein are, and the sea and the things which are therein, that there should be time no longer. But in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he shall begin to sound, the mystery of God should be finished, as he has declared to his servants the prophets. And the voice which I heard from heaven spake unto me again, and said, Go and take the little book which is open in the hand of the angel, which standeth upon the sea and upon the earth. And I went unto the angel and said unto him, Give me the little book. And he said unto me, Take it, and eat it up, and it shall make thy belly bitter, but it shall be in thy mouth sweet as honey. And I took the little book out of the angel's hand, and ate it up, and it was in my mouth sweet as honey. And as soon as I had eaten it, my belly was bitter. And he said unto me, Thou must prophesy again before many peoples and nations and tongues, and kings. Amen. This is the word of the Lord, and may the Lord be pleased to grant his own blessing upon that public reading of his holy word. And may the Lord attend the ministry of his precious word to our hearts here tonight. Well, friends, let us pray, let us come, bringing our many needs before our God, and as we do so, we come to worship him. Prayer is essentially worship and praise to God and asking in the petitions of our heart, which the Holy Spirit, we trust, will lay upon our hearts. Let us pray. Well, dear friends, I'd like you now to please turn your prayerful attention to the book of Revelation, chapter 10. We arrive in chapter 10 of Revelation, the verses that I read to you in your hearing earlier. And by way of introduction, let me just read verses 1 and 2 again of this chapter. And I saw another mighty angel come down from heaven, 
clothed with a cloud, and a rainbow was upon his head, and his face was, as it were, the sun, and his feet as pillars of fire, and he had in his hand a little book open, and he set his right foot upon the sea, and his left foot on the earth. I suppose if we were to study this passage very carefully, and we ought to every passage of God's Word, we've been going through the book of the Revelation, line by line, verse by verse, we could write over this passage, the great theme of this passage is the little book open. Our attention is not so much drawn to the angel, although it is, but mainly the great theme of this chapter is the little book open. It's mentioned four times in the 11 verses of this chapter. Now you may recall from last week's message, last Tuesday, as we gathered around God's Word, and as we've been going through the book systematically, the seventh and the final trumpet has not yet sounded. That seventh and last trumpet really marks the end of the world as we know it. And there will be what the Lord Jesus Christ calls the regeneration. That is the rejuvenation of this world as it is. As Peter says, it shall be burnt up with a great conflagration, the great fire. Everything, the elements, shall be melted. That is what will happen at the final trumpet. Here, in chapter 10, the seventh trumpet has not sounded yet. And I remind you that This evening, as we come here to chapter 10, we are still in the midst of the third of seven cycles. It's now in cycle three, and as I say often, the cycles are the things that lead to that one final event that are happening in this world, various things as this world rolls on to that final day, things seen from different angles. The seven cycles are what we call synchronous. They run parallel one to another. They are things seen from different vantage points. We saw in the first cycle, we saw, didn't we, the seven candlesticks, which represent the churches. And we saw, though there were seven literal churches there, they could represent churches down through the gospel age. And uh, we could say that so often churches are like the church at Ephesus, or Smyrna, Laodicea. They were literal churches, but they do represent characteristics of every true church. There will always be a flaw. There are things to commend, and there are things to condemn. And the Lord himself, who has the seven spirits, walks amidst those seven candlesticks. And he says, I have this against thee, but he that overcometh. So we saw the seven candlesticks, and then we saw Christ who has the seven spirits, and then we saw the seven seals of the decrees of God. These are things that are unfolding down through time. As the church exists, the church will always exist through the gospel age, will it not? And the gates of hell shall not prevail against Christ's church. They have always been believers down through the millennia, no matter how small the church has been, but it has always been. And then we see running alongside the seals, of course the seals were represented first of all by four 
horses and uh, four different color horses. The first is the chief, we could say, because the one upon the white horse there is Christ, crowned with a crown, and he is going forth conquering and to conquer. And we read of him in Revelation 19, 11 to 15, as one as having many crowns upon his head, many victories. And his name is Lord of Lords and King of Kings. And one day he will finally be seen by everyone. Every eye will see him. And then there are three last seals mentioned. Those are things that happen to the very last day. Tumults, wars, pestilences, and so on. And then we saw running alongside those seven seals, seven trumpets. As we've seen, the trumpets, what are they? They are warnings sounding to the world, to this present world. And God has been warning this world ever since. We know what even happened at AD 70 when Jerusalem was destroyed. That was a warning. The desolation and the desecration of the temple. The Lord even spoke of that himself. But here, the things concerning right up until the coming of the Lord. The seven trumpets, warning, sounding to the world. And then there are, as we'll see soon, seven plagues or seven golden vials of judgment. Those run alongside, they're parallel. So the things that happen in the world, they're not only warnings, but they are what we could call many judgments of the great judgment that is to come. And then we'll see the seven heads of the beast and the great harlot. And then we'll see the seven places where the harlot or the false bride sits. There's a false church in this world that postulates as the true church. And that I believe personally to be the church of Rome. And the one who sits in the place of God and who sits over the word of God. Of course, indeed, the Pope, he says his word trumps the written word of God. That his word is infallible, but God's word is infallible. Our confession, I believe, is clear on this as well. Now, despite all these things, the world will not repent. If we not read that in the last chapter, look at chapter 9, verse 20. Despite all the trumpets and the disasters, the world will not repent. And the rest of the men, verse 9, verse 20 of chapter 9, which were not killed by these plagues, yet repented not of the, the works of their hands, that they should not worship devils. And indeed, I mentioned last week that here we have the first table of the law. There is idolatry, isn't there? They have not repented from worshiping devils and idols of gold and silver and brass and stone and wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. And then we have the second table of the law. Neither repented they of their murders, nor their sorceries, nor their fornication, nor of their thefts, and so on. So all manner of sin is covered there under the second table of the law in the verse 21. So nothing changes really in history. Nothing will change the human heart but the grace of God. A man must be born again. And let me say as well, nothing is left to fate. These things must take place. The world must experience these trumpets, these disasters. And uh, God is over all things. Now, if you remember in chapter 8, 
and the verse 1. In between the sixth and the seventh seal, there is a silence. There is an interlude. And the same thing happens here. But verse 1 of chapter 8 says, when he had opened the seventh seal, there was a silence in heaven. So just before it actually unfolds, there's a silence. And the same thing happens here. Hasn't been fulfilled yet. Now you'll notice the same thing happens here between the sixth trumpet and the seventh trumpet. As I say, the seventh trumpet hasn't sounded yet. And what we could say is running parallel with the trumpets and the seals, where there is the silence in heaven, and you notice the angels are there, and uh, prayer in chapter 8, verse 3, it ascends up to heaven. The seventh seal isn't opened yet. And then the incense of the prayers of the saints go up and so on. At the same time that that is taking place, something else takes place here in time. And what is it? We have a vision here just before the seventh trumpet of the angel, the mighty angel, with a little book, as we'll see, on earth. And uh, remember, this is a vision. John sees something here. We are not to imagine that there is going to be a large angel that the entire world will see standing in the midst of a sea. This is a spiritual vision that John saw. This is not something that everybody sees. In fact, what we see now here in chapter 10, is actually taking place here on earth. And I'll seek with the Lord's help to explain that. What we see here concerning this mighty angel and this little book open up and this angel with his foot in the sea and also in the earth is, again I underline and underscore, is taking place now. As I mentioned, this little book is mentioned some four times. And uh, John is to... Take in this book. He is to eat this book. And this book will bring him sweetness to his taste, but it will bring him bitterness inside and in his experience. And let me say it's the same for every true Christian. What John experiences here is the true experience of the Christian in this life. And uh, I suppose, as we see, what is going to happen the end of the world is going to come. We're just approaching now the seventh trumpet. But again, remember, it leads on into a next series of cycles because the end hasn't come yet. Now, this fits in perfectly. The gospel, as we'll see, this little book, represents the mystery of the gospel which must go forth into all the earth. Remember, all the saints are sealed and will be sealed and will be saved. But the gospel must first go out into all the earth, and that gospel will save. It will make many's mouths sweet, but it will bring bitterness to their lives. That will be the experience of every true child of God. But the gospel must first, before Christ comes, must go into all the earth first, and then will the end come. If you turn with me to Matthew 24. And you notice in verse 10, we are given 
events leading up to the final coming of the Lord Jesus. And he says how things will wax worse and worse. Matthew 24.10 And then shall many be offended and shall betray one another and shall hate one another. And many false prophets shall arise and shall deceive many. And because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. But he that shall endure unto the end, the same shall be saved. Now notice, and this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations. And then we read, then shall the end come. So the word, the angel here holding the word, and we see from his posture that this represents power and authority in the earth. And John himself is to take this book, to eat it, and sweet as well as bitter will be his experience. And I say that will be true for every true child of God. So let's look first of all at the angel in verses 1 to 5. Now there has been a lot of discussion, let me say first of all, and debate as to who this angel really is. Most say it cannot be the Lord Jesus Christ. Firstly, they say because of whom the angel swears to in verses 5 and 6. And the angel which I saw, verse 5, stand upon the sea and upon the earth, lifted up his hand to heaven and swear by him that liveth forever, who created heaven and all things, and the things that are therein are, and the earth and the things that therein are, and the sea and the things which are therein. So the angel swears by he who created all things. Now, who created all things? Well, we're told in the word of God that John chapter 1, all things were made by Christ. Also in Colossians, all things were made by him and for him. Christ made the heavens and the earth. So that's one reason they suggest that it cannot be Christ. The second reason why they suggest it cannot be Christ is by the way John speaks to the angel in verse 8 and 9. It's not rude, but it's not with the sense of reverence that you would speak to Almighty God. He says in verse 9, I went to the angel and said unto him, Give me the little book, and so on. And so they suggest there it cannot be Christ or the Lord himself because of the way John addresses this angel. And the command, of course, is given from heaven to speak to this angel. A third, another reason many suggest that this is not Christ, is that Christ, who is now glorified in heaven, and is at the right hand of the majesty of God the Father, does not go back to theophanies. He does not go back to becoming an angel or a figure anymore. And that's quite true. There's no more angelic appearances of Christ as such. Uh, so many conclude that this is not the glorified Christ. But some think of it as uh, perhaps Christ as an illusion of his Holy Spirit. Some think it is Christ. Some rather think, as I said, it refers to Christ of his spirit being in the world. And I'll give you an example. 
Of course, this angel, look at the description, first of all. And I saw another mighty angel come down from heaven, clothed with a cloud, and a rainbow was upon his head, and his face was, as it were, the sun. Now, that description we know from Revelation chapter 1 seems to fit Christ, doesn't it? And his feet as pillars of fire. There again, another example. And these are the reasons they would give to suggest that it is Christ. But let me give you a possibility here. We can't be dogmatic on these things. And again, let me say, I want to emphasize the passage is not emphasizing so much our concentration, our thoughts are not so much to be upon the angel, but upon the book. But let me offer to you this. Some think that this is perhaps represented here here of the spirit of Christ in these terms. It was Christ who actually never visited Ephesus. But we are told that he went there preaching the gospel. We see here the angel with his foot upon the earth and upon the sea, having power and dominion. One's foot upon something, even the enemy, is um, figurative of having power or authority over something. Now, if you turn to Ephesians 2, verse 14, Paul here speaking of Christ. He says this, Speaking of Christ, Ephesians 2.14, he says, For he is our peace, who hath made both one, and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments, contained in ordinances, for to make in himself of twain one new man. He's speaking about here, first of all, as Jews and Gentiles, bringing them into one body. Jews and the Gentiles used to be separated. But he says here, Christ is our peace. And he says, so making peace, that he might reconcile both unto God, that's both Jew and Gentile, in one body, by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby. Now notice verse 17. And came and preached peace to you which were afar off, and to them that were nigh. Ah, oh, but you say, but Christ never went to Ephesus. But he came preaching by who? By his Spirit. He endued and he endowed the Apostle Paul, did he not? And he preached. The gospel was preached. It's the same in 1 Peter 3.19. We are told that during the days of Noah, Christ preached to the spirits that are now in prison through Noah. That's a startling fact, isn't it? If you just turn there to 1 Peter 3.19, we're told that in the same way Christ went and preached by the Spirit to the unsaved souls that once lived upon the ancient world and were destroyed in that great deluge. 1 Peter 3.19, by which also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison. That's where they are now. Which sometime were disobedient when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was a preparing. 
wherein few, that is, eight souls, were saved by water. So we're told, really, in those verses that Christ went and preached by his Spirit and through Noah preached to those spirits that are now reserved in prison, in judgment. So in this sense, many suggest, and again, we cannot be dogmatic, and we really don't have the absolute answer as to who this angel is. It could be Christ, it could be his spirit, or it could be an angel associated with the work of the gospel. We just frankly don't know. There are some things we don't need to know. Now, some things are hidden from us. We have to admit that. In fact, if you looked at um, verse 4, it tells us that certain things are hidden from us. Notice, and when the seven thunders had uttered their voices, I was about to write, says John, and I heard a voice from heaven saying, Unto me, seal up those things which the seven thunders uttered, and write them not. So John heard things that he was forbidden to write. And we have to come to terms with this. There's some things, as Christians, we are simply not given the answers to. And God has hidden some things that are not necessary for us to know. Now, as I said, this angel could be the Spirit of Christ, because we see so much of Christ resembled in him. And we'll see some features of this angel. It could be Christ. Heaven will reveal. We cannot and do not need to be dogmatic on this one thing. The one thing, let me say, is you look at this passage and you read it over, read a passage over at least ten times to get the central meaning of it. The one thing the passage is drawing our attention to is not so much the angel, but is the little book. The little book that the world doesn't esteem. But the little book that makes all the difference, that makes all the difference to the Christian's life. It will be sweet to us, but it will also bring great bitterness and sorrow to us. It's a mixture for the Christian. And so you see there in the verse 4, John heard things. It, it, some have even said, well, this could, could have been another cycle, as it were, running alongside the seven thunders. He was forbidden to speak of these things. And we have to acknowledge that the Scriptures are very clear. There are secret things of God. Let me give you an example. Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong unto the Lord our God. But those things which are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. So there are some things that are simply re not revealed to us, that we do not need to know. And the Christian is not somebody who's a sensationalist, as I said. Lord, teach me what I need to know, and that's enough. And uh, faith, it swims, doesn't it? Where reason drowns, as they say. Now therefore, as we look at this situation here, the sense is this passage is telling us to look not so much to the angel. There's a lot to see in the angel, but we can't draw final conclusions about who exactly this angel is. 
The main thrust of this passage is the little book and uh, will be referred to as the mystery. It is the mystery as we'll see and it is the mystery of the gospel. Not that the gospel is mysterious, but it was hidden for so long as we'll see as Paul refers to, but now has been revealed in the last times. So as I said, our attention is not so much drawn to uh, the angel, but the little book, this little book in the world's eyes, insignificant, seemingly, in the world's esteem and value, but it's not to be in ours. It will bring sweetness, it will bring bitterness, but God's word is true. So let us just notice, first of all, this commission given, verse 5, And the angel which I saw stand upon the sea and upon the earth, lifted up his hand to heaven. So here's going to be an oath. And swear by him, verse 6, that liveth forever and ever, who created heaven and the things that therein are, and the earth and the things that therein are, and the sea and the things which are therein, that there should be time no longer. Some translate this phrase to mean that there should be no more delay. After when? Well, look at verse 7. But in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he shall begin to sound, the mystery of God should be finished. So what is the mystery of God should be finished? Well, the gospel, as we have said, is the mystery of God. That it should be concluded, that it should uh, have been preached in all the world. Remember as we read there from Matthew chapter 24, where the Lord said, and the gospel shall be preached into all the world, and then shall the end come. The mystery that had been hidden for so long should be preached in all the world, should be finished, as he hath declared to his servants the prophets. That's what he did in Matthew 24. He declared it to his disciples there, prophets as well. So the last trumpet will only sound when the mystery of God is finished. As I said, the mystery, if you turn to Ephesians chapter 6, you'll see there that the mystery has to do with the gospel. It's this little book, the Word, that is both sweet but brings bitter experience in our lives. Ephesians 6.19, we are told, and for me, says the Apostle Paul, that utterance, he's asking for prayer, may be given unto me that I may open my mouth boldly, Ephesians 6.19, to make known the mystery of the gospel. It's not that it's, as I said, mysterious, but that it was a mystery for so long. Peter said the angels longed to inquire into these things. Friends, saints in the Old Testament knew that God's people would be saved by grace, but they didn't know exactly how. They knew sin would be atoned for, but they didn't know how. Christ is the one who is. That answer, isn't it? His blood shed. The blood of God, the Son. That's the greatest mystery that God the son should lay down his life for his people. A mystery that was hidden from the world. I suppose it was seen in the types and the shadows. But who could believe it until it really happened? 
And it did happen. Another verse, Colossians chapter 1, verse 25, we read Paul here speaking of his work as a minister. He says, Whereof I made a minister according to the dispensation of God, which is given to me for you to fulfill the word of God. Notice now verse 26. Even the mystery which had been hid from ages and from generations, but is now made manifest unto his saints. It's now revealed to the people of God. It was a mystery. He is speaking specifically about the word of God. So the way of salvation had not been known, truly. Now, as we notice this angel, we notice his posture. We notice one foot in the sea, one on the land. A foot upon something is a picture of a soldier having victory, as it were, over something. Christ has victory, whether it be his angel, whether it be Christ, whether it be his spirit, has power and authority over all. Has he not said that? I have authority over all things. And he's got the book opened here, we're told. Now, it should not be too difficult for us to explain these things. What we need to remember is the symbols and the signs have a meaning. We're not to pay too much attention to the symbols, but to the meaning of the symbols, if that makes sense. What do the symbols mean? Now, you notice, first of all, there is a symbol on his head, on the angel's head. Verse 1, And I saw another mighty angel come down from heaven, clothed with a cloud and a rainbow, was upon his head. Well, we know from Scripture that the rainbow is a symbol of peace, isn't it? We know what happened after the great flood. God sent the sign in the sky, didn't he? That God would not flood again this world with a great deluge. That there would be peace. We know that the earth had peace. And there never has been destruction since that time. Well, sadly today, many have hijacked that symbol, haven't they, of the rainbow to put forward their terrible agenda. Well, we see here the angel has a symbol of peace. And of course, he's got the little book in his hand. It's the gospel of peace. You think of this little book that he's holding. It's all symbolic language. In uh, 2 Corinthians 5.17, we're told, Paul says, If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. All things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And he says this, And all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ. You see, this gospel comes with a message that God has reconciled his people to himself. So as they hear this, they hear the message, Christ has made peace through the blood of his cross. There's peace. Noah was in that ark. And what happened in that ark? There was still a great deluge that came over the earth. And unless Noah was in that ark, there was no hope. The ark sheltered him from God's judgment. And so it is with the cross. 
What happened there at the cross? Christ literally became our ark. He took the storm of God's judgment. All wrath was pent on him. He was delivered up. He made peace, says Paul, by the blood of his cross. And he hath reconciled himself to ourselves. You and I never reconciled ourselves to God. You hear what I'm saying? We could never do it. When were your sins dealt with, dear Christian? Not the day you repented. You were forgiven the day you, were rep- you, you, you repented. But God dealt with your sins at Calvary. Your sins were paid for then. That's why he said it's finished then. The fact that you are believing is because God has sent forth his spirit into your hearts whereby you cry, Abba, Father. You wouldn't believe unless he sent his spirit, unless he, he gave you a new heart first and then sent his spirit into your heart. You would never believe. Your sins were not dealt with the day you confessed your sin. But your sins, we're told, were purged. Hebrews 1 verse 3, on the cross, on the cross, before you were even born. Because God knew every sin that you would commit. He knew every sin that I would commit. And every sin was paid for at the cross. Justice was met that day for every sin of Christ's people that they would ever commit. My, I wish ministers would get their theology right today. That doctrine is so sidelined and so watered down We must be very careful to not use words wrongly. We don't speak about applying salvation. That terminology is not found in Scripture. When the Holy Spirit quickens a sinner, what does he do? He brings a sinner to believe what Christ did for that person specifically at Calvary. They will come. They will believe. Peace was made that day at Calvary. For every one of Christ's sheep, he bore their sins in his own body. Another verse I give you. Paul says in Romans 10 verse 14, and here he's speaking about the elect church of God, how then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? In other words, he's saying, how are the sheep going to hear? How are they going to know? And how shall they believe on in him of whom they have not heard, and how shall they hear without a preacher? A preacher must be sent from the church. And how shall they preach except they be sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of them that preach, notice, the gospel of peace. It's peace because Christ has made peace for his people there at Calvary. And the message is simply to be believed. By all the elect, all the sealed, and they will believe. It's the gospel of peace. And only those who are Christ will repent. Because we know natural man will never repent. Natural man will never believe. Well, that believe a lie. Because Christ only died for the elect, friends. That's what I say. He died for his people, those who is sealed and will seal upon this earth. Secondly, I want you to notice 
the angel's posture, his power and his dominion, pictured here in this posture, verse 2. Read from the remainder of verse 1. And his face was it were as the sun, and his feet as pillars of fire. You see the power, the authority. And he had in his hand a little book open, and he set his right foot upon the sea and his left upon the earth. As I say, this posture pictures power, doesn't it? Authority. Authority over all things. This angel, whether it be Christ, his spirit, or an angel representing the work of Christ, has all power. And he has the book opened. And uh, the picture is, as it were, his preaching. Or, and John is to, to take this word, and he is told at the end of this passage here to prophesy. And the word prophesy is also the word interpreted to mean to preach. And it's a comforting word to John that John was going to be released from exile. Notice the verse 11 of this chapter. And he said unto me, Thou must prophesy or preach again before many peoples, and nations, and tongues, and kings. And uh, legend has it that Jerome, one of the early church fathers, recorded the saying of John that he could be heard as he was taken on a stretcher to the church at Ephesus, Lord's Day by Lord's Day, exhorting the children there at Ephesus, little children love one another. So John, more than likely, it seems, we believe from this, as Scripture must be fulfilled, John was finally released and went out and preached the Word of God. And by the way, you can't take the word there, prophesy, to mean prophesy, because you get to the end of the book of the Revelation, and we're told, if anybody adds to this book, the prophecies, you shall suffer the plagues therein. So it has to do, not with, not with ongoing revelation, but the preaching of the word, the prophesying of the word. And so you see the posture here. And then it brings us, doesn't it, back to Psalm 8, verse 6. Thou hast put all things under his feet. All things are under Christ's feet. Whether it's his spirit here, of course, sent into the hearts of preachers like John, and other ministers, authority is given. Christ, when he led captivity captive, went on high. What does the scripture say? He gave gifts unto men to preach the word for the church. And uh, think of the words as well in 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty-five: He must reign to the put all enemies under his feet. Christ is reigning now. He's in heaven sat down at the right hand of the Father. And notice the roar, and cried with a loud voice, as when a lion roareth. And when he had cried, seven thunders uttered their voices. And of course, John is forbade to say what those seven thunders are. But notice John's commission received. As we come to the verse 8 there. And the voice which I heard from heaven spake unto me, again said, Go and take the little book, speaking here to John, which is open in the hand of the angel, which standeth upon the sea and upon the earth. So John is to take of this one. And I suppose it's, it's true of every minister. He receives, does he not, of Christ or Christ's spirit. And uh, 
unless the Lord gives the gifts, the ability. The man is not equipped for the work. We need the Lord every day to fill us, to give us the unction of his spirit. And you notice here John's obedience and the effects of this book. I, I want to really speak more on this now here in the verse 9. John's obedience. He, he goes and he takes the book from the angel. And I went unto the angel, verse 9, and said unto him, Give me the little book. And he said unto me, Take it and eat it up, and it shall make thy belly bitter, but it shall be in thy mouth sweet as honey. Well, what is meant here? Think of it. We find a parallel, as we'll see in the book of Ezekiel chapter 3. But let's just think of what the psalmist says. What does the psalmist say in Psalm 119, verse 103? He says, How sweet are thy words to my taste, yea, sweeter than honey to my mouth. You notice in the verse 104 of the Psalm 119, he says, through thy precepts, I get understanding. Now notice, what is the result? What is the result? You get understanding. Therefore, I hate every false way. So in one sense, when we come to God's word, it's sweet to us. Especially when we hear of the gospel, and we hear of our sweet Savior, and we hear of all the wonderful things that he has promised to those that love him. And uh, the precious promises, they're so sweet. And we think how foolish it is that people reject the word of God, that people live how they do as if there is no God. And we think to ourselves how blind the world is. And if only we could wake up our family if only we could wake up our husbands, our wives, our children. If only we could wake them up from the wrath to come. It's like we were listening to Pilgrim's Progress on the Lord's Day. And we see Christian running from the city of destruction. And he's got his fingers in his ears. And he's saying, life, life, eternal life. And everybody else is screaming around him, come back. And he's saying, no, let's run, let's escape for our lives. As you take the word of God in, it's sweet to you because you realize you've come to the truth and you've come home and there's nothing else that you would want more than to escape this sinful world because you know it's headed for destruction and you know God is angry with sin and you know there's a heaven awaiting you and you think how foolish these people are to live for this world. It brings sweetness to you but it at the same time, it brings bitterness, doesn't it, to your soul? And you just cannot bear it. It's hard. And the world persecutes you and hates you for Christ's sake. This is what Ezekiel experienced. If you turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 3, verse 3, we read there, it's exactly the same picture that's given the Lord says to Ezekiel, and Ezekiel has to take a message to the people that are in exile. And uh, he says there, Ezekiel 3, 3, And he said unto me, Son of man, cause thy belly to eat, and fill thy bowels with this roll or scroll that I give thee. Then did I eat, and it was in my mouth as honey for sweetness. And he said unto me, Son of man, 
Go get thee into the house of Israel and speak, notice, with my words unto them. What, what you've eaten, these are my words. Go now and take this, what you have consumed, go and take my word. Now come down to verse 7. And the Lord warns, But the house of Israel would not hearken unto thee, for they will not hearken unto me, says the Lord. For all the house of Israel are impudent and hard-hearted. And you look down now at verse 14. Notice the Spirit now. So the Spirit lifted me up and took me away, and I went in bitterness, in the heat of my spirit. But the hand of the Lord was strong upon me. So you, you have a same imagery here, don't you? The word was sweet. There was good news. God was going to return a remnant. But most people wouldn't believe. Most people wouldn't repent and turn to the Lord. And this was great bitterness. Was it not to Ezekiel? And so it is in John's day. So it is in our day. So it is in our lives. It's no different. It's throughout the age, up until the final trumpet. We are going to experience what John experienced. Imagine John had the whole of the book of the Revelation revealed to him. And he was to go back. And very few would listen. There'd be many hard hearts. You see, it's the same here. You come back to verse 9. And he said unto me, Take it and eat it up, and it shall make thy belly bitter, but it shall be in thy mouth sweet as honey. Thank the Lord it's not all bitter for us, is it? But it is hard, isn't it? It's a hard world. You see, the word of God is sweet to believers, sweet to their taste, it's sweet to their appetite, but it will bring sorrow of heart. And they say it's true, what, what you, you are what you eat, isn't it? Now, the gospel and the word of God becomes our life. And we start to frame our minds and our thinking. What does Paul say in Romans 12? He says, be transformed by the renewing of your minds. And as you are, you become changed. As you are, you, as we thought, Lord, today evening, light comes into you and it dispels darkness from you. And the world thinks you're mad. And you are persecuted by the world. As you take in this word, it will bring conflict with the world. Did the Lord not warn us of that? Did he not even say a man's foes will be of they of his own household? We're told in Matthew 10, Think not that I am come to send peace on earth. I came not to send peace, but a sword. For I am come to set a man at variance against his father, and the daughter against her mother, and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's foes shall be they of his own household. But then he says, he that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. My friends, the Lord demands we put him first. And that is not going to be easy. We have to pay our allegiance to Christ. It will bring bitterness. It will bring sorrow. Immediately believing will bring sorrow. 
it, it comes straight away into the life. Your unsaved family are going to try to pull you away from Christ. Friends, colleagues at work, it's going to bring trial after trial this world. Will it not? I want to notice in Acts 14, as soon as the Apostle Paul, if you just turn there, Acts 14, verse 19, and Paul here is about killed, put to death, almost dead, stoning. Acts 14, verse 19, And there came thither certain Jews from Antioch and Iconium, who persuaded the people, and having stoned Paul, drew him out of the city, supposing he had been dead. Howbeit, as the disciples stood around about him, he rose up and came into the city, and the next day he departed with Barnabas to Derbe. And when they preached the gospel to that city and taught many, he returned again to Lystra and Iconium and Antioch, same place, by the way, where he was stoned, confirming the souls of the disciples. Now, what did he say? Exhorting them to continue in the faith and that we must, through much tribulation, enter into the kingdom of God. You see that? As soon as these people were converted, Paul warned them, you are going to be hated by this world. The word is sweet. The people rejoiced. The people believed. But there's going to be trial. There's going to be difficulty in this life. But we have to overcome. We have to show our allegiance to Christ. Of course, the Lord never wants us to divorce our family, but we have to show allegiance to Christ, don't we? And commitment to Him. We have to be in the world, but separate from the world. Notice as we close a verse of encouragement to John. And he said unto me, Thou must prophesy or preach. We know, as I said, this cannot mean uh, declare things in addition to the Scriptures. Because here is the last book of the Bible. Scripture is sealed up by Christ. We're told in Daniel 9 that he would seal up Scripture. But it has to do with preaching. Thou must prophesy or preach again before many people, nations, tongues, and kings. What an encouragement! My dear friends, I wonder if John thought, I'm never going to get out of here. It was the Lord's will that he should live. And that's all that's important for us, isn't it? What does the Lord have in store tomorrow for me? And I don't want to do anything outside of God's will. Of course, he has his decreed will. And of course, he has what we call his revealed will. And in a sense, the revealed will is what we should do. What should you do? You should labor for him. Because it's the best thing you can do. How foolish it is to be a Christian and just coast along in our own little way and have very little to show for it at the end of this life. 
You know, the Lord has really surprised me much in my life. Where I thought things would be impossible. And I've had no choice but to do God's will. The Lord has always shown me all things are possible by Him. Where I thought things are too difficult and things will never change, the Lord has changed it. Where I thought this person's heart would never be changed, well, the Lord's changed it. The Lord has made a situation easier for me. The thing is, He's always said, You obey me first. If you obey me, He always opens up the way. He always makes the way of escape, doesn't He? We're told that He does not put on us more than we can bear. Has He not told us that? In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, but He always makes the way of escape. Yes, that's what he's told us. Therefore, we need to trust in him. We need to walk by faith. We need to go on every day doing his will, doing his good pleasure. And we must always press on to the work that he has called us to do. He says that. He is the one that upholds his people. We are not to provoke him to anger. Let us continue on. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. But he says, if any of them that believe not bid you a feast and so on, to be disposed to go thereon before, he says, you be faithful to me. You carry on. In whatever difficulty it is, do not compromise. We are to never compromise. The Lord always makes the way of escape. Let me give you the verse. We read of the people in 1 Corinthians 10 who fell away. These were not real believers. We read in verse 11, Now all these things happened unto them for ensamples, that they are written for our admonition, upon whom the ends of the world are come. And then we have these words, Wherefore... Let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. Now notice, there hath no temptation taken you, but such is as common to man. But God is faithful. There's the key. You have trial, you have difficulty. But remember, God is faithful to what? Who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you are able Never say the, diff- the situation's too hard. Never say it's too difficult. Notice, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able, but will with the temptation or the trial also make a way to escape, that you may be able to bear it. I was just talking with somebody a couple of days ago. I heard a young minister some years ago say, God does put on us more than we can bear. But I never read that in the Bible. And you know what? That young minister's ministry folded within two years. 
God is faithful. And he never puts on us more than we can bear. But he always makes the way of escape possible. All he has called us to do is to be faithful. To commit ourselves to a faithful creator. We will take in the word, it will be sweet to you. And hold on to that sweetness, would you? The trouble is, so often, I think in our lives as Christians, we do not suck out all the sweetness of God's word. But there is. It's like they used to say, the Puritans used to say, the Lord's day is the market day of the soul. And as we hear the word of God, and as we take it in, we suck out all the nectar, all the goodness from it, and we live by it. But it will be that sweetness that will carry us through the bitterness, the sorrows, and the disappointments of this life. God will never fail us. It is going to bring us trouble, because the more light we see, the more we see men are in darkness. But it doesn't mean to say you must drift off into that darkness. You are light in the Lord. And John says, if we walk in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, the Lord Jesus. And we do as much as we can, do we not, to nurture that and to strengthen one another in the Lord, to feed on His Word and to encourage each other, even in the bitterness and the sorrows of this life. Friends, I must warn you, as I'm sure you've heard before, being a Christian is never going to be easy. I never told you it would be. And this Bible has never told you it will be. But it will be sweet. We will have the sweetness of Christ. We will experience bitter, sorrowful things in this life. But the Lord will never forsake us. The sweet thing is when we see somebody saved. And that makes all the difference, doesn't it? All of our times out there in the open air preaching, hearing the scoffing and the ridiculing of men, and then one soul is saved, that makes so much difference, doesn't it? You say, this one's brought to Christ, that one's brought to Christ. All the disappointments we have with other people, and people who profess to be Christians and they soon show that they're not, what a disappointment that will bring. But the Lord has his people. They will remain faithful to the end. And it makes you watch your own soul, doesn't it? Others fall away. He that thinketh he stand, take heed, lest he fall. You walk humbly, I must walk humbly. Examine your heart as I must examine my heart. We preach the word. The word is a sweetness to some. It's the savor of life. But to some... It's death. And we've got to believe that. As we go out and preach the word, many will hate the word of God.
and will hate the truth. Man is not born an ally of God. He is born a hater of God. And until sovereign grace subdues a soul, my friends, it remains in darkness. So you just then be all the more encouraged in your salvation that God had mercy on a wretch like you and me. That's all it is. He did it, not you. It's his grace. There will be sweetness. You're saved. Bitterness. The world will reject the truth unless Christ makes it sweet to them. Amen.